Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. I first met my uh, good friend John when we were both freshmen in college, and I immediately liked the dude. Uh, He was from Southern California. He had a big, hearty laugh. He was a wide receiver on the football team. But best of all, he was a passionate follower of Jesus, and I had just recently surrendered my life to Christ at at that time. And so I was looking for a role model. I was looking for someone who could show me what it means to follow Christ wholeheartedly. And I found that in John. And John and I made a pact with each other. And the pact was that we would pray for each other whenever we saw one another across campus. It could be 100 yards away as we're headed to class or the dining hall or the library. Whenever we saw each other, we would immediately pray for one another. And so for the next four years, this carried on throughout college, uh, John and I constantly prayed for each other. I knew that he was talking to God on my behalf, that he was praying for my studies, my girlfriend relationships, which needed a lot of prayer back then, uh, for my character development, for my spiritual growth. I knew John had my back. And that pact has continued on to this day. In fact, just yesterday, he texted me to remind me, I'm praying for you, Jimmy. And so uh, we've got this kind of sixth sense. I live in Illinois. He lives in Colorado. But we've got this sixth sense when one another needs kind of extra prayer. So it's not unusual for John to call me on the phone and say, Jimmy, what's up? You know, God's put you on my heart. What do you need prayer for? And sure enough, I'm facing a big decision or a health concern or a problem with one of my kids. and, And John senses it. He just knows. He just knows. Now, this kind of prayer I'm describing here, when we talk to God on behalf of somebody else, it's called intercession. And and the person who prays for people like this is an intercessor. Wouldn't you love to have an intercessor in your corner, somebody like my buddy John? How would you like to become an intercessor, somebody who talks to God on behalf of other people? Well, that's our topic for today, and welcome to week one of a five-part Lenten series. This series is going to take us right up to Holy Week, to Good Friday and Easter, and it's called, the series is called Christ Above All, and it's a study of the first two chapters of the New Testament epistle of Colossians. So if you brought one of these with you today, would you turn with me to Colossians chapter one? Colossians chapter 1. In the opening verses of Colossians 1, Paul describes his role as an intercessor on behalf of the Christ followers who lived in the ancient city of Colossae. So let me give you a little historical background here, tell you about Colossae, tell you about this band of believers, these Christ followers who were gathered there. So Colossae was located about 100 miles inland from the Aegean Sea in Asia Minor. Asia Minor is uh, what is today called Turkey. So 100 miles in from the Aegean Sea. It was a a prominent city at one time, the the most important city in the entire region a couple centuries before Paul. Now by Paul's day, it had faded a bit in significance. It was overshadowed by two neighboring cities, Hierapolis and Laodicea, but Colossae was still important. It was located on the major east-west trade route called the Royal Way. Now, Paul himself had never been to Colossae. Uh, 
So how did the church get started there? Well, for a period of time, Paul had lived in a city called Ephesus, about 80 miles to the west of Colossae, uh, nearer to the Aegean Sea. Paul had lived there again for nearly three years, and he'd been telling people about Jesus and starting a church in Ephesus. And while he was in Ephesus, a dude named Epaphras from Colossae visited Ephesus, discovered a relationship with Jesus, took the good news of Jesus back to his hometown of Colossae, and eventually started a church there. But the church ran into trouble. It was a, a big theological problem, a heresy was afoot. And, and this, what this heresy did is it diminished the role of Jesus, the importance of Jesus in the lives of Christ followers. So Epaphras, was, he was upset about all this and he needed some help, he needed some coaching. So he went looking for his old bud, the Apostle Paul, his mentor. And he tracked Paul down. Paul at this time was in jail in Rome, in jail for having preached the gospel of, of Jesus. And Epaphras gives Paul an update on what's happening in Colossae and says, well, you know, what, what can we do about this? And so Paul sat down to write the Colossians a letter, this group of people he'd never met before, a letter that raises the importance, the preeminence, the supremacy of Jesus, which is why we're calling this series Christ Above All, Christ Above All. And Paul begins his letter by letting the Colossians know that even though he's never met them before, he is always praying for them. He's in their corner. He's their intercessor. So with that background in mind, uh, join me as I read, uh, follow along as I read the opening verses, first half dozen verses of Colossians chapter 1. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hopes stored up for you in heaven and about which you've already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. We're going to stop there in the middle of verse 6. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God, for your holy word. Now, I want you to notice how Paul begins his prayer for the Colossians. Look again at verse 3. He says, we always thank God. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So before Paul begins his intercession for the Colossians, he always pauses to give thanks to God. He always stops to give thanks to God. So giving thanks is the warm-up to intercession. Now, this is a really important point, so I want to say it again. Okay, Giving thanks is the warm-up to intercession. See, praying for other people is actually hard work, and so it helps to limber up our prayer muscles before we get started. I don't know how many of you work out regularly. I work out several days a, a week, and I have discovered at my advanced age, uh, if I don't warm up my muscles first, you know, I'm in trouble. All right, before I jump on an elliptical machine and start pumping away, I got to do some stretches. I got to do, you know, five or ten minutes of just walking on the treadmill before I, I really go after it on the elliptical machine. And if I don't, my muscles object. If not immediately, then the next morning when I'm trying to get out of bed. All right, so it's important if you're going to work out, you're going you're to do some work that you stretch, that you limber up, that you, you warm up your muscles. Giving thanks is how we warm up in preparation to intercede for others. In fact, if you've never been much of an intercessor, 
If you've never been much of a prayer for other people, perhaps it's because you've never learned the secret of warming up with thanks. You know, the psalmist says, Psalm 100 verse 4, that if you're going to come before the throne of God in prayer, you should enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. That's how you come before Almighty God. You enter his gates with thanksgiving. So if we'll begin our intercession with thanksgiving, we'll discover that God warms up our hearts so that when we, when we pray, we then pray with fervency and enthusiasm for other people. So what did the Apostle Paul thank God for before he began interceding for the Colossians? I noticed several things that Paul thanks God for in these opening verses, and these are things that every Christ follower can thank God for on any given day. So jot these down if you're filling in your outline as, as we go. Here are three things to thank God for, you know, just to get you limbered up. Thank God for transformed lives. Thank God for transformed. Paul was grateful for the way that God was working in the lives of the Colossian Christ followers. Now, if your Bible is open on your lap, look again at verses 4 and 5, and th- this is where you get to mark up your Bibles. Just take your pen and circle uh, every time the word faith or love or hope pops up in these two verses. See, Epaphras had brought Paul news about the Colossian Christians, and it wasn't all bad. I mean, he was concerned about this heresy that was going down in Colossae, but he also told Paul, but there are some good things happening in these people's lives. They got this tremendous faith in Jesus, and oh, love. You've never met a more loving group of people. They have a way of welcoming others and accepting them into their fellowship, and hope. Hope, their hope is set on the future eternity in the Lord's presence. They're not wrapped around the axle of material things in this world. So he, he thanks God for what he's heard about the transformation in the lives of the Christ followers. How often do we, do we stop and thank God for what we see him doing in other people's lives? For, for signs of faith, signs of love, signs of hope. Around Christ Community Church, our staff uh, stops twice a week to pray for you, to pray for our church. And we spend about an hour at a shot, a couple times a week, uh, 120 people, 120 staff members spending time in in prayer for you. And on occasion, uh, before we get started, I will say, hey, let's, before we pray, before we intercede, let's just throw out some God sightings. That's what we call them. God, where do you see God showing up in people's lives? And people will call out stories of what's happening with people in their area of ministry or their community group. Or what We did this just a week ago, and it was like 20, 30 minutes before I could shut the, the thing down and say, okay, now we got to pray. If you, if you want to warm up your, your prayer muscles, consider beginning with giving thanks to God for what he's already doing in people's lives. You know, this is the way we prime the pump. This is the way we get intercession going. Second thing that Paul thanks God for in the opening verses of Colossians 1 is gospel spread. I want you to go back to the text. We left off in the middle of verse 6. I'm going to pick it up in the middle of 6. The gospel, Paul says, is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it's been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. So Paul was deliriously happy. He was over-the-top thankful when he saw how the good news of Jesus was spreading around the world. 
You know, people everywhere, Paul says, are, are surrendering to Christ. That pumped Paul up. Does it pump us up? Do you, do you get excited when you see people coming to faith in Christ? You know, do, do you get excited when you, you see gospel spread through, uh, through your life, through your testimony, to friends at work, to neighbors, uh, to fellow classmates at school? Do you get excited when you hear about uh, people coming to faith through the ministries of Christ Community Church and picking up one of those Next Steps packets? Are, are you thankful when you hear what God's doing through our international impact ministries? You know, we work in six countries around the world, uh, outside of the United States. Cool story from one of those countries, and I can't name the country uh, because of persecution going on there. So we've got to be a little secretive about this. But I got news uh, a week or so ago that in this country, over the past year, we are the primary supporter there of a church planting ministry. And so we, we support these uh, evangelists, Pastors who go from village to village. Some of these guys have known Christ for like a year, and they're already pastors, going from village to village, sharing the good news about Jesus. How many people do you think in this country have come to faith in Christ over the past year, 2019? Okay, this past year, according to the report we got, 214,000 people came to Christ in this country. And... and got baptized and went public in a place where to do something like getting baptized is to take your life in your hands. So if you're a regular giver to Christ Community Church, because we are the major supporter of this ministry, you have been investing this past year in 214,000 people coming to faith in Christ. I hope that excites you. I hope you feel that's something to give God thanks for. So Paul opens this letter and he starts with thanksgiving for the transformed lives of the Colossians, for the spread of the gospel. Third thing he stops and thanks God for is, is for the role of spiritual mentors in their lives, specifically Epaphras. So go back to Colossians 1, we're up to verse 7. He says, you learned it, you learned the gospel from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who's a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Spiritual mentors. Interestingly, Paul begins most of his New Testament epistles. He writes 13 New Testament letters. Most of them begin with a thanksgiving section, but this is the only thanksgiving section he writes in which he mentions somebody by name. And it's this dude, Epaphras. And he says, good old Epaphras, he's the guy who led you to Christ. He, he, he's the guy who has nurtured your faith. He's the guy who prays for, for you regularly. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 12 of Colossians, Paul says that Epaphras is always wrestling in prayer for you so that you'll stand firm in all the will of God. Wrestling in prayer for you. Wouldn't you love a mentor like Epaphras? So, some of you can look back on your Christian experience and you can see mentors along the way. There was somebody who led you to Christ originally. There was someone who taught you how to read the Bible and get something out of it for your life. There's someone who's always been in your corner praying for you. There, maybe it's a community group leader today who leads you in discipleship. When was the last time you thanked God for that mentor? See, Paul says if, if you regularly thank God for the mentors in your life, I'll bet it'll energize you, motivate you to become an intercessor for others. 
Okay, that's my introduction. I'm now ready to start preaching. Once we have warmed up our prayer muscles by giving thanks to God, we are prepared for the role of intercessor. So what should we pray for when we're praying for others? So you say, okay, my prayer muscles are warmed up now. I'm going to be praying for family members and friends. I'll, I'll pray for people in my community group. I'll pray for neighbors, people I work with, kids I go to school with. Okay, what do you pray what you, now, now, most often when we pray for people, we're only motivated to pray when there's a crisis in their lives, right? We're praying for them because we heard they're out of work, they lost their job, or they're going to have cancer surgery this week, or they're in a funk, they're in a deep depression, or they're struggling with an addiction to alcohol. So we're going to pray. And that's great, super important to pray for people's crises. But that's the tip of the iceberg with regard to intercession. Intercession is so much more. Intercession is praying that people thrive. So let me tell you about four things that are at the top of the Apostle Paul's prayer list. We're going to take a look at them as we continue in Colossians chapter 1. The first thing is this, and I want you to, to memorize these four things. So if you'll become an intercessor for others, you'll know what to pray for. The first is fruit. I want you to say that with me. Here we go. Fruit. Fruit. So let's pick up where we left off. Verse 9 of Colossians chapter 1. Paul says, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. That's an intercessor. I've not stopped praying for you, Paul says. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. So Paul's going to pray that they please God. How do you do that? Four things he's going to pray for. Bearing fruit in every good work. I'm going to stop there. Paul says, I I'm praying for fruit in your lives. What does he mean by fruit? Like apples, pears, watermelons. I'm not trying to be funny. Actually, I am trying to be funny because I want to lighten you up a little bit. But come on, everybody. You set your clocks ahead and you're tired out there. <laughs> Work with me, all right? So what does fruit mean? Well, we look at the context because Paul uses this word twice in the opening verses of Colossians. One time is right here in verse 10 that I read. He, he prays that they'll bear fruit in every good work. So fruit is good works. You know, fruit, fruit is caring for the poor. Fruit is figuring out ways to be of help at work or at school, in, in your neighborhood, among your neighbors, figuring out how to help at home. Where work is rolling up your sleeves, finding a ministry at the church where you can serve. Fruit is packing meals, a million meals for Feed My Starving Children. Fruit. Now, clarification here. We, we are not saved by fruit. Okay, when I talk about being saved, you know, we got a problem, the Bible says. We, we go our way instead of God's way. All of us do this. We're all like sheep who've gone astray, the prophet Isaiah said. We're, every one of us has gone our, our own way. And the problem with going your way instead of God's way is that you disconnect from the one who is the giver of life. And so the result is, is death. The Bible says we're all doomed to spiritual, physical, eternal death. But God loves us so much that he sent his son with a, a solution. Jesus is the solution. Jesus took the death we deserve to die. That's what he was doing on the cross. 
Jesus was taking the penalty for our sins. And now he offers to everyone who will surrender to him, he offers forgiveness and new life. So we're saved by surrendering to Christ. We're not saved by doing good works. We don't earn our salvation. We're saved by trusting Christ fully. However, even though we're not saved by good works, the Bible says we are saved for good works. Paul writes in Ephesians 2 verse 10, he says, we're God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. So even though we're not saved by good works, we are saved for good works, which means that surrendering to Christ is not the finish line, it's the starting line for us. And that means when we pray for other people, when we pray for our neighbor or we pray for that other kid in our history class or we pray for uh, one of our, our, our extended family members, we're not only praying that they surrender to Christ, we're also praying that after they surrender to Christ, they live a life engaged in good works. Fruit, that they bear fruit. What else does Paul pray for? Well, the other kind of fruit that he describes is up in verse 6, the other mention of fruit. He says the gospel, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. Now, what does fruit mean in this verse? Well, it obviously refers to Christ followers who are sharing the good news, the gospel about Jesus, so that other people can surrender their lives to him and be, be granted forgiveness and new life. We call this in Christian circles evangelism, okay, bearing fruit. So when we're praying for other Christ followers, we should pray that they boldly and winsomely talk about Jesus with others. We should pray that they'll, they'll share the gospel, the good news at work and school and in their neighborhood. I read a, a very disturbing statistic about evangelism recently. Okay, according to a study that was done in evangelical churches, okay, churches like Christ's community, where Christ is honored, where the Bible is taught as God's holy word. According to this survey, millennials, okay, we're, ta we're talking about young adults, late 20s to mid 30s according to this survey 47 percent of millennials say that they don't believe sharing the good news about jesus is a good idea in fact it's morally wrong they say because it imposes your beliefs on other people really you know i want to ask so if if you had cancer and you discovered a cure, you got cured, and you knew somebody else who had cancer, you wouldn't share with them that cure? You wouldn't say, this is what happened to me? You wouldn't urge them to consider the cure for themselves? That would be heartless. So, so one of the things I pray for, for my Christ-following friends who are millennials, and this is true to some extent of every age group, you know, all of us who are Christ followers, who have a bit of timidity when it comes to sharing our faith and don't want to impose it uh, on others. My, my prayer is, God, give us boldness. God, give us winsomeness. God, give us outspokenness to talk up Jesus. You get it? Good. So the first thing we pray for, fruit. Fruit means good works, and it means sharing the gospel. Second thing, knowledge. So I want you to say fruit and knowledge. Here we go. Fruit knowledge. Go back to verse 10 where we left off. After Paul prays that the Colossians will be bearing fruit, the next expression 
in his prayer is that they will be growing in the knowledge of God. Now, what is the, the knowledge of God? What does that entail? Uh, for many of us, we associate knowledge with, with factoids that we cram into our heads. So if we're Christ followers, then knowledge is learning facts about God and the Bible. So we buy ourselves an NIV study Bible with all those footnotes, and we join a community group where we'll study the Bible together, and we get a Bible-savvy reading schedule and read every day, and we fill in a journal with insights that we're getting out of the Bible, and now we know a lot of stuff. I mean, we, we know how to define what, what's meant by God's sovereignty. We know the difference between the Old Testament's major prophets and minor prophets. We know the signs of the Antichrist in the book of Revelation. We know whether Genesis chapter 1 is a description of God creating the world in six days or in millions of years. I'm not going there. We know a lot of stuff. We know a lot of stuff. We've got a head full of data. You know, but that's not the end goal of knowledge, according to the Bible. You know, go back to the middle of verse 9. Paul prays, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge, there's the knowledge word, of his will, through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that, now don't miss the so that, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. See, Paul prays that as the Colossians grow in their knowledge of God, yes, through small group Bible studies and reading the Bible every day, that this knowledge will produce lives that are worthy of God and pleasing to God. In other words, he's praying for applied knowledge, what we call obedience. Applied knowledge, Bible knowledge that shapes our lives. Friends, we can be in multiple Bible studies, but if we're not putting what we learn into practice, you know, if our multiple Bible studies are not making a difference in our marriages or what kind of workers we are on the job, if, if our Bible studies are, are not making a difference in how we steward our financial resources or whether or not we're, we're taking time to serve in the local church, then we should drop one of our Bible studies and start applying what we already know. Okay, the Bible isn't into knowledge for knowledge's sake. It's into knowledge for the way in which it shapes our lives, applied knowledge. Quick side note here. You know, Paul says that he's praying that the Colossians' knowledge will lead to lives that are worthy of God and pleasing to God. Now that assumes, listen to this, that assumes that it's possible to live a life as a Christ follower that's not worthy of God and not pleasing to him. Now here's the reason I make this point. It's because of some pop theology I sometimes hear uh, in Christian circles. And, and it's wrong-headed. You know, I, I hear people say something like this. They say, well, you know, once you surrender your life to Jesus, God sees you in Christ, and so you're totally perfect. Your, your life is always worthy, always pleasing to God. Well, if that's the case, then why does Paul waste his breath here praying that they live lives worthy of God and pleasing to God if they're automatically worthy and pleasing? See, there's a mix-up in our thinking, a little theology lesson here. There's a mix-up between our positional status before God and our practical status before God. So positionally speaking, in Christ, it's true 
that when we surrender our lives to Jesus, we are not only forgiven all our sins, we are clothed in the righteousness of God. That's an awesome thought. And when I, when I mess up in my life, it is so comforting to come before God and know that I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So positionally speaking, it's true. I'm worthy. I'm pleasing to God in Christ. But practically speaking, I may still live a life that's not worthy, a life that is is displeasing to God in my attitudes, in my words, in my deeds. And so Paul prays that the, the Colossians won't take that path. He prays that their desires and their attitudes and their priorities and their behaviors and their relationships and their entertainments and so on will be worthy, will be pleasing to God. Intercessors pray that their Christian friends and family members will put their Bible knowledge into practice, applied knowledge. You know, the guys in my men's group on Wednesday morning, eight of us get together at a coffee shop, study the Bible together, and we're using the Bible-savvy reading schedule. And uh, my guys get incredible insights out of Scripture, even out of Ezekiel. You've been reading Ezekiel, some of you don't know what I'm talking about. You're not following the Bible-savvy reading schedule. All right, we've been reading in Ezekiel and in John and 1 John. and get such great insights, but they know that after they share one of their wonderful insights, I will say something like, wonderful insight, now how do you apply it to your life? They know that's the question that's coming next. What are you going to put into practice? What are you going to do differently based upon this message that you got out of God's Word this week? This is what scripture asks of us, obedience, applied knowledge. Okay, so what do we pray for people? We pray for fruit, we pray for knowledge, we pray for power. Say those three with me. Fruit, knowledge, power. One more time without looking. Fruit, knowledge, power. Okay, we're up to verse 11 in Colossians 1. The next thing Paul prays for, he says, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience. So Paul prays that God will give the Colossians power, circle power in your Bible. Two words besides power I want you to to note here, endurance and patience. God's giving us power for endurance and patience. Now, those two words look like synonyms, don't they? But in the original Greek language, they have different shades of meaning that are really important to note. Okay, endurance, this is where you mark up your Bible. You circle endurance, you put a line out to the margin, and you write adverse circumstances. Because endurance has to do with adverse circumstances. Patience, circle this one, put a line out to the margin, has to do with difficult people. So endurance, adverse circumstances. Patience, difficult people. So when we pray that God will empower friends and family members uh, with endurance, we're praying that they'll be able to withstand adverse circumstances. You know, when they can't find a job, you know, when they're struggling to understand algebra, when they're fighting Crohn's disease, when their work schedule is taking them away from their family too much, when they're trying to break free of a porn addiction, yeah, adverse circumstances, we pray, God, give power for endurance to my friends. Now, pl- please note that you know, Paul doesn't pray here that God will sprinkle fairy dust over people who are in trouble and just get them out of their situation. 
Because that's often how we pray, right? When, when we finally do pray for somebody because they're in a, in a crisis, our prayer often is, God, get them out of this. Sometimes God doesn't want to whisk us out of our problems, does he? So, sometimes God wants to give us power to endure, power to persevere, power to trust him, power to grow in the midst of it. So one of the things we could pray for people in adverse circumstances is God give them power to endure. The other thing we pray for is power for patience. It has to do with difficult people. So we pray that God will empower our friends or family members with patience when their, their boss is being difficult or their spouse is fighting with them or their best friend at school just gossiped about them and broke up their friendship or their teenage son or daughter is rebelling or when their neighbor, neighbor's dog is barking at midnight or when their coworker is making fun of their Christian faith, we say, God, give them power for patience with those difficult people. So, so who do you know? Who do you know that needs God's power today? for endurance and adverse circumstances. Who comes to mind? Who do you know that needs God's power today for patience with difficult people? Who comes to mind? What are you going to do about it? Paul would say, well, I hope you say, I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to be their intercessor. I'm going to be in their corner. So fruit knowledge, power, one last one, thanksgiving. Say all four of them without looking. Here we go. Fruit, one more time. Fruit, power, thanksgiving. Now, isn't it interesting that Paul wraps up his introduction to the letter to the Colossians with the same theme he started with, giving thanks? giving thanks. In fact, Paul talks about thanksgiving six times in this short epistle of four chapters. Evidently, this is a really important issue. Evidently, uh, thanksgiving is something that even Christ followers need prayer for. I took uh, three of my grandkids to the Children's Museum in Naperville last week on my day off, ages six, four, and four months. I'm very thankful. <laughs> and, uh, well, I did have help from Sue and, and my daughter, but uh, one of the exhibits at the museum there is a woodworking shop, and you stand in line and you wait with your child or your grandchild until a spot opens up, so I'm standing there with four-year-old Winston, and we finally get in, and I'm thinking, you know, isn't this a wonderful experience getting to make something? Well, it's not if you have the talents I have, Zippo, Okay. So we get in there, and first of all, there's hardly any credible tools to work with. There, there is a screwdriver, a hammer, uh, a saw, and a drill, and none of them work really well. And you get a pile of nails, and you get some scrap pieces of wood. Now, what are you going to make with that? Well, the guy next to me, the grandpa next to me, is obviously like a finished carpenter. <laughs> so the dude whips up this airplane for his grandson. Just amazing. And so Winston looks over and he goes, Grandpa, let's make a helicopter. <laughs> so we made this thing that didn't look anything like a helicopter and it fell apart. And it, the whole thing fell apart. So there were tears on the way out of the workshop. Winston cried too. Yeah. <laughs> 
But my, my daughter is a really good coach. She's a, so she takes Winston aside, and I'm listening to her coach him, and she says, now, buddy, we got so many things to be thankful for, don't we? So many things to be thankful for. And she looks over at me, and she goes, and you need to thank Grandpa for spending time with you. And I'm thinking, amen to that. You know, so. <laughs> what do we have to thank God for? You know, this is one of the things we need to pray for each other. Because even Christians are not the most grateful people on the planet. You know, we can be surly, we can be grumpy, we can be discontent. And when we see that in one another, it's not cause to scold each other, it's call to pray for each other. So what should we be thankful for? Let me go back to the text one last time. Read a section, the closing section of this passage that deserves its own sermon. Verses 12 to 14 deserve their own sermon. And all I have time to do because we want to celebrate communion is to read it to you, note three things to thank God for, just like there were three things at the the top of the passage to thank God for. Here are three more, and then we're going to close. Okay, verse 12. Paul prays that the Colossians would would, would make a habit out of giving joyful thanks to the Father, joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Three things for Christ followers to thank God for. In fact, as we take communion, Here are three things to thank God for. First, inheritance. Look again at verse 12, circle inheritance. God has qualified us to share in the inheritance of his holy people. Now, Paul is using some Old Testament imagery here. He's he's bringing to mind that story in the Old Testament where God's people had been enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years, and God sends them a deliverer, Moses, and he leads them to the promised land. And when, when they get to the promised land, everybody gets their inheritance. They get their own piece of property. They get their own home. Now, when you get to the New Testament, similar story. We're not enslaved to Egypt. We're enslaved to sin, sin's penalty, which is death. Jesus comes, gives us life on the cross. If we'll surrender to Jesus, we could be delivered from the slavery to sin, and we could be brought to the promised land, eventually a new heaven and a new earth where we'll all get our ultimate inheritance and eternal home. Is that something to thank God for or not? an eternal home in the presence of Almighty God, new heaven and a new earth. you got a piece of real estate there if you're a Christ follower. See, we're not talking about thanking God just for, it's a nice day, thank you. i got to raise a work thing. We're talking about really, really significant stuff, inheritance. Second thing, rescue. Look at the next verse, verse 13. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. More Old Testament imagery here from the same story. Okay, when, when God set out to deliver his people from slavery in Egypt, Pharaoh didn't want to let him go, so he needed some convincing. God sent ten plagues. One of the plagues was darkness, deep terrifying darkness, so dark you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. And God used that to deliver his people to the promised land. We we were once caught in spiritual darkness, friends. We couldn't see our hand in front of our face. 
We couldn't see our need for salvation for Jesus. We couldn't see why a relationship with God was so spectacular. And then God shone his light into our hearts. We say, ah, now it makes sense. And we surrendered to Christ. And God delivered us from sin. He rescued us from the dominion of darkness. And he brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. There's a third thing here. Inheritance, rescue, thirdly, forgiveness. Look again at verse 14. And so in Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We sing an old hymn around Christ's community church. I love some of the old hymns we sing. We sing, it is well with my soul. The second verse goes like this. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. As we go to communion, that's what we celebrate. If you're a follower of Jesus, my sin was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Three things to thank God for here. Inheritance, rescue, forgiveness. Christ followers should be the most thankful people on the planet. And again, when we, when we pray for others, whether it's praying for your kids or the, the, the folks in your community group or others at Christ Community Church or a fellow believer at work or at school, pray that God will make them thankful people, that they'll give thanks to God. Pray for fruit, pray for knowledge, pray for power, pray for for thanksgiving. Fruit, good deeds, and a winsome testimony, talking about Jesus. Knowledge, applied knowledge, not just Bible factoids, but living out, obeying the truths they're learning in Scripture. Power for adverse circumstances and troublesome people, and thanksgiving, overflowing with thanksgiving. Here's a real simple application, okay? Because we don't want to walk away from this message and not do anything with it because we know God wants applied knowledge, right? So a real simple application, if you would. This week, each day, determine you're going to pray for three people. Intercede for three people. Whoever you want to intercede for on that particular day. Okay, maybe it's one of your kids. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a friend at school. Three people, 60 seconds per person. Pray through those four things. Fruit and knowledge and power and thanksgiving. Just a simple way to put into practice what we learned today. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, as we go to communion, I pray that you would give us grateful hearts. For those among us who have never surrendered to Christ, and so we don't know what it is we're to be thankful for because we've never experienced redemption, forgiveness. We've never experienced that sense of being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of of your son whom you love. God, may this be the moment when we bow our head and we say, okay, Jesus, I want in. I want you to be the savior and the king of my life too. And God, for those of us who know you, may this be a, a warm time. May this be a recalibrating time when we remind ourselves of what's ultimately important in life. May this be a time where, because we have strayed from your path this week, every one of us have, may this be a time where, where we're, we're renewed in our devotion to you, our commitment to following you wholeheartedly. We pray in your name. Amen.